Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Huberman. You're about to make the jump from the dishonest mainstream media into free and independent thought from key thought leaders on the subjects of culture, causes, politics, and faith. Thanks so much for joining us for Indie Thinker today. Uh, my guest is Clay Jones. He is a visiting scholar for the MA in Christian Apologetics program at Talbot Seminary and the chairman of the board of Ratio Christi, a university apologetics ministry. He was the executive director of Simon Greenleaf University, now Trinity Law School. He holds a doctor of ministry from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Clay is also the author of the books, Why Does God Allow Evil?, which is kind of going to be the basis of what we talk about today. Um, a com- compelling answers to life's toughest questions, and then also most recently, Immortal, How the Fear of Death Drives Us and What We Can Do About It. And we'll kind of probably, I, I think, I haven't read um, either of those in, in, in enough great detail to say, but, um, uh, but probably where we'll end our conversation today. But uh, Clay, thank you so much for being on Indie Thinker. Pleasure to be, pleasure to be with you, Reed. So I'm really excited to talk to you specifically because I'm kind of a theology hack and I love talking about the, uh, the big questions of suffering and how God allows it, you know, why does God allow good th- bad things to happen to good people and all that stuff. And uh, I'll dig into this a little bit later. I think that this probably is one of the most... Um, probably most issued reason for why people don't believe in God is the issue of suffering. So I really want to dig in and talk to you about, uh, about suffering and evil and, and God and, and how all of those things can exist all at the same time. And, and then more importantly, the, the why behind those things. But before we do that, I, w- I would love to just hear a little bit more about you kind of on a personal level, uh, perhaps what you're what you're up to right now, maybe if you've got another uh, book in the works, but also to what motivated you to write a book about evil, about suffering, um, and uh, giving answers to those things. Well, it's a, it's a great question, and I discuss it at the beginning of my book, but it's, you know, when I, I became a Christian very young, at a young age, I became, I was, uh, two days before I turned 13, I became a Christian, and uh I became a pastor as a pastor, associate pastor in a fairly large church. And one day the Lord began to reveal to me the glory that awaits us in heaven forever. And, and boy, I'll tell you uh, the wonder of what it means to be a Christian and the glory that awaits us forever. These things were so amazing to me that it became my favorite thing to teach on. Of course, as a pastor, you have to teach on other things. And so I taught on other things. But really what I wanted to teach on is the glory that awaits us in heaven forever. After some years of that, I began to wonder, okay, now I understand where we're going and I understand what God's doing in us. Where did we come from? What is the basis or the genesis of the, how do Christians, before they're Christians, what are they like? So I just started studying uh, human evil and human depravity. And I've spent many years, as a matter of fact, uh, studying genocide uh, and mass murder, because I thought that's a, like the quintessential examples of human evil are found in genocide and mass murder. And as I kept studying these things, uh, a truth revealed itself to me. And this is a truth that other genocide researchers find the same thing. And that is that sooner or later, as a, a psychologist, a historian George Crane and psychologist Leon Rappaport put it, sooner or later, the ultimate truth reveals itself one knows finally that one may either do it or be done to, Uh, that if you keep reading genocide long enough and not just read it a little bit to find a quote to illustrate your book or to to 
put out there on social media to say, how can God allow this? If you read it long enough, what you find is, is that it's ordinary humans are the ones that commit genocide. Well, that was life-changing. That realization was absolutely life-changing to me. And when I realized that, when I saw what God was going to do for our eternal future, and then I understood the, the depths of human sinfulness, uh, the problem of evil just the problem of evil just went away when I understood those things. Right. And now I understand, or at least it became very small. Now I understand a lot of people are going to think that that's crazy talk. But D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous professor, preacher at Westminster Chapel in London. He says, you know, he says, most of the Christians' problems are due to a double failure. They fail on one by one hand to understand the depths of human sinfulness, and they fail on the under, other hand to understand the wonder, the glory of what it means to be a Christian. Lloyd-Jones is right, and uh, I can't, that sums up where I came from. And once I realized that, you know, I started really teaching on the problem of evil and thinking about it deeply. And a friend of mine said, why don't you write a book? And I thought I'd love to. Now, that was 25 years ago. I didn't. I thought the book uh, 26 years ago, in fact, I thought the book would be out uh, two years later. In fact, my friend says, oh, no, you'll have that book out in no time. Uh, he'd publish some books and you'll have it out in no time. Well, it took 23 years. Uh, and of course, I had a lot to learn. But anyway, so that's that's the origin of writing the book. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I, I love that on a couple levels, and I'll try to turn this into a question. First of all, I love that because um, I, I think if I, I'm saying this as a Christian, so people may not take this seriously if they're not Christians or maybe think this is dismissive, and I don't mean it to sound that way, but the reality is, is if we look at what per se our favorite um, a person in history to talk about with this stuff, if we look at Hitler and we see what he did, it is incredibly dismissive to say, how can God allow that? But then not to look in a mirror and say, am I capable of that? Um, I think it's deeply dismissive to not ask the question of ourselves and just to try to make it some, some uh, philosophical esoteric question. Now, I think obviously as a theologian, as both of us stand in those shoes that it's important to ask both of those questions. But if we're not willing to ask that second question, I don't think we're taking the subject seriously at all. And we don't understand ourselves at all. So I think that's incredibly important. But I also think it's interesting to talk about suffering, especially right now with everything that's going on in our society, when we look uh, at some of the sentiments that I think are uh, objectively just kind of rising out of our modern day conversation, uh, maybe on politics or whatever, but we're starting to see the rise of uh, discussions on socialism and a resurgence of kind of Marxist ideas. And I find that interesting too, that that became the seedbed for your book because uh, what's interesting about evil and suffering and stuff like that is that, uh, is that Marx believed that Christianity specifically and religion was the opiate of the masses because it was counterproductive to revolution. In other words, he thought that if you have a robust theology of suffering, that therefore you will not revolt and you will not fight back against those who are your quote unquote, you know, like oppressors and that kind of stuff. So it's interesting to me though, that the reverse, it, the story of history is that actually Marxism has been responsible largely, I think, in part for the bloodshed of the 20th century that took place, which was the bloodiest century in human history. Um, so, so I think that's interesting that actually he was on the other side of this, uh, of this issue saying, hey, um, uh, you know, suffering, the Christians have an answer for that. So we need to push that as far away as we possibly can. And we need to engage in this other pursuit, which is odd because we're talking about it now, but, but also odd because it was such a um, damaging idea in, in history. So I'm just wondering kind of if, uh, 
what do you think the importance of having a conversation in our present context? Because this conversation has been happening for, for years. And perhaps maybe what motivated you to write a book that's had so much written on it. Why do you think it's important to talk about suffering now? Uh, it, well, because it is, it's the biggest question that people have about why God allows evil. And people, we are living in a world of suffering, a world of COVID and stuff. I'd like to just quickly mention something about Marx. And in fact, I wrote a blog on this at clayjones.net, but uh, I said the reason Marxism always fails and will always fail, the reason it is is because Marxism fails to understand the depths of human sinfulness. Mm -hmm. uh, and even with critical race theory, it fails to understand the depth of human sinfulness. And it divides people into oppressor and oppressed. Uh, and, and the oppressed are good people. No, they're not. Uh, and I certainly don't think the oppressors are good people because there are no good people. Yeah. But Marxism couldn't succeed because people are innately selfish and because people and this is a, this is Christianity 100. Uh, the people are innately selfish. And so you can't uh, have this utopian occur because people, again, are innately selfish. Uh, they don't want to give up their stuff. And so anyway, then you have to kill them or or reeducate them. And and anyway, so just just a word about that. But but obviously suffering, as you mentioned, uh, I, I don't think it's the number one reason that people don't become Christians. It's the, because the number one reason that people don't become Christians is because, honestly, they're selfish and sinful, and they don't want to give up control of their lives to the creator of the universe. Mm -hmm. But it is the number one reason yeah. uh, that people give. Uh, it, it is That's their reason. Well, you know, God allows all this suffering, and I can't worship a God that does that. Well, uh, you don't understand what's going on in the universe, and that's really the bottom line here. Okay, so let me let me push back a little bit on that before, and maybe we'll dig into a, a discussion prior to this, the the a priori kind of discussion. But uh, uh, let me just push back on that and just put myself in kind of the shoes of the person who doesn't believe in God and say, well, then does that mean that you're saying that all the suffering that exists in the world is simply caused by humans? Well, what about natural disasters? What about uh, those issues that that take human lives. And then not to mention, which we'll jump into in a second, not to mention that evil God of the Old Testament who is calling his people to do evil things that bring suffering upon the world. So, so how do you answer to people who want to push back a little bit and just say, well, uh, you know, not all suffering is caused by humans who, if, even if we agree with the premise, which obviously I think is true, that humans are selfish. So how do we, how do we answer that? Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer to that is all, and, and this will take some people aback that haven't thought deeply about this subject, but all human, all suffering, forget just human cup suffering, creaturely suffering, all creaturely suffering is the result of the sin of creatures one way or another. It's not necessarily the direct result of their particular sins, but all suffering is a result of, of creaturely, the misuse of creaturely freedom. Uh, Adam and Eve in, Satan, in heaven, for instance, Satan obviously misused his free will and got a rebellion going. Uh, he then brought that rebellion to Adam and Eve, and then, then Adam and Eve misused their free will. And when God, they did that, God then cursed the ground, which would then enable all kinds of pestilence. What, what cancer, what COVID, what uh, tsunami or earthquake or whatever cannot fire, cannot have occurred. Because when God looked at planet Earth and he said, I curse you, what couldn't that have enabled? But see, notice that was the result of uh, creaturely, the misuse of creaturely freedom, uh, Adam and Eve's sin. 
And and so I I argue and and we would be glad to debate this, you know, with somebody anytime, but I argue that all all suffering is one way or another the result of creaturely sin. Now, obviously, when a child gets cancer, for instance, that isn't because that child sinned. I don't believe that for a millisecond, but it if nothing else, it can certainly be because Adam and Eve sinned, and we live in a fallen world full of poisons and full of deadly things. Uh, we're no longer under God's protection, uh, his constant protection anyway. He's still, not one sparrow falls to the ground without his permission, but we are still under God's general protection. But he is allowing us to reap the benefits, or rather I should say the horrors, of living in a fallen world. And so, yes, I, I, in short, all suffering is a result of the misuse of creaturely freedom. And one more comment about that. It's impossible. This is logically impossible. It's, it's logically impossible to give creatures uh, free will and, and not allow them to use it wrongly. You, you, have, you can't tell your daughter that she can go out on a date with some punk down the street and then chain her to a heavy kitchen appliance. That's not giving her free will. Yeah. And God could not give creatures free will and not allow them to use it wrongly. And that's as, that's as logical as it gets. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that because I was going to ask you to kind of mention that too, because I think that's the second leg of what you're saying. Um, because obviously, I think the first thing for a Christian, that should be a premise that is granted if you're a biblical Christian anyway, which there is no other kind. Uh, uh -huh. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Uh, but, uh, but the other leg to that is even if you don't grant that premise, the, the, the reality is, is that there is this argument from free will, that there is no such thing as love uh, without free will. Um, and, and the greater good of free will producing love is and this is maybe challenging for people. I'd love to hear you maybe even go a little bit deeper here and unpack that more. But it's challenging for people to hear the greater good of free will and the greater good of free love, choosing to love, uh, is it outweighs the difficulty and the pain of suffering and evil of being allowed to exist in the world. Uh, yes, I'm glad to do it. Uh, you know, in in why, why Does God Allow Evil, I mention a lot of science fiction films, and, and I really enjoy science fiction films. And some of our most popular, favorite, they keep remaking them, science fiction films are films about free will. Uh, for instance, there's the plot line of man uh, creates computer, uh, computer becomes self-aware, gains free will, computer decides to destroy man, Man spends the rest of the movie uh, trying to destroy computer. And we find that in the Matrix movies. We find that in the Terminator movies. We find that in Eagle Eye. Uh, we find shades of that. As a matter of fact, we find that in Blade Runner, West Wing, West, West World, rather. Yeah. And, uh, and shows like that where they make this uh, computer and this computer gains free will. And then the computer begins to rebel against Humankind. That sounds an awful lot like the gospel, doesn't it? I mean, God creates man, gives man free will, man rebels against the creator, in fact, kills God the son. Uh, but God's smarter than man and uses that, uses the death of his son to bring those who are willing, who use their free will, to come back and through the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm not negating the, the work of the Holy Spirit, through the work of the Holy Spirit, they, they freely choose to accept Jesus and follow him. And so... Anyway, and by the way, I've never, and I've been saying this to audiences for decades now, I've never known any science fiction work or author ever, regardless of how much suffering results in the world because of 
uh, of uh, having free will. They say humans would be better off without free will. And there's a host of other movies, uh, you know, along this line. The Invasion of the Body Snatchers was made three times. And that's where aliens come down and take away human free will. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, it, like I say, wait, four times. Invasion of the Body Snatchers has been made, remade three times. No, remade three times. And then there's the original. So it's been made four times. Yeah. But anyway, so, uh, and, and humans do everything they can <clears throat> humans do everything they can to get around human free will. Uh, I mean, to get around the aliens taking away their, their free will. Um, and so I think free will is incredibly important. And you're right. You could not know love. You couldn't know courage. You couldn't know selflessness. And uh, when it comes to Adam and Eve using their free will wrongly, there's a term we use in theology called, called the Ophelix culpa, and that's in Latin, that means, oh, fortunate fall. That You know, in Revelation, it says that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. So before God created humankind, he knew Jesus was going to die on the cross for human sinfulness. Uh, but we, if, if uh, Adam and Eve hadn't fallen, we wouldn't have known about the love of God to the extent that we know it now, not even close. Seeing God the Son allow himself to be tortured to death on the cross is quite an education for us. I, I really, that's so rich. I want to dig into the cross, but I want, to, I want to kind of hold that off for later and just kind of circle back to another one of those objections that I just hear in my mind because I, I take pride in the fact, uh, and maybe that's the wrong word, but th- that I've been able to reach a wide audience. So I want to make sure that I, I give respect to kind of uh, their kind of framework and where they may be coming from and questions they may have that they may not have the opportunity to ask that I want to ask on their behalf. And plus, I hear it all the time. So, uh, all right, so we say free will is the cause of so much of pain and suffering in the world. But when we look at the Bible in which you base some of your opinions, uh, we, look at, we see a God calling for genocide. We see a God calling for the extermination of men, women, and children. You know, this is, you know, like a la uh, uh, Richard Dawkins, you know, uh, who I think oddly enough doesn't believe that evil even exists, but he wants to call God evil, which is a self-defeating argument. Uh, so when you hear the objection, like, Evil exists because there's a uh, there's an evil God in the Old Testament doing all sorts of evil atrocities. How do we respond to that question when when people bring that up? If we're going to say, "Oh, well, it's just free will," well, you say, "Well, your God is doing evil things." You know, uh, Reed, I, I've got to tell you, uh, I've written extensively on this. I've talked about it all over the United States, as a matter of fact. Uh, and like I said, I've written extensively on it. I just you might. It's something I would be glad to come back on your program and do an entire episode with you on that subject. I did yeah. one recently with Elite Alyssa Childers, uh, Elisa Childers, and uh, but I boy, I'll tell you that is that is something we're going to have to spend the next twenty minutes on because I have so much to say. Now, if you want to get into that, we can do that. But I would suggest, you know, I mean, that's a subject that it's a big, huge subject that, that there's so much to say about it. If you want to, like I said, let's 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 march into it. But I would suggest that you keep that for another time. Okay, so let's. Uh, I'll put that down in the show notes, perhaps even the the link that you did with Alyssa. Uh, and just for now, anybody who is curious about that, they can go there and they can check that out. But then I would also say too that 
I think in these conversations, if we're interested in truly having them from an intellectual and honest basis, that context matters. To me, I think the simple answer is this, is that when you dig into the context of these stories, you have to know history. You can't just know what you're reading right in front of you. You have to know what you're reading and why you're reading it. And so, for instance, when you look at the massacre of Jericho, you've got... Uh, you've got God calling for the extermination of the people of Jericho who were actively practicing the extermination of their own people through infanticide, uh, through uh, sacrificing their own children to Molech, for instance. And so this is not something that God can afford to, uh, to endorse or to continue to encourage the death of his little children uh, in this manner. So I think context is king. I would encourage people, they want to know about the sins of the Canaanites. The Lord in Leviticus chapter 18 lists the sins of the Canaanites. Uh, and he gives his reasons why he thinks they need to go. Uh, and he talks, he starts off with incest. And he says, basically, I'm, I'm paraphrasing real short now. He says, do not commit incest. Then he says, do not commit adultery. Then he says, do not offer your children to Molech. Uh, then he says, a man should not lie with a man as one, one lie, a man lies with a woman. Uh, and the last one is, he says, and a, and a man or a woman should not have sex with an animal. Uh, and then the Lord says he, that the Canaanites were doing all these things. And I have an article, people can Google this, entitled, We Don't Hate Sin, So We Don't Understand What Happened to the Canaanites. Yeah. Yeah. And what I do in that article is I go through the Canaanite sins from their own sources, in other words, it isn't just the Old Testament or Leviticus telling us they were very bad. This is what they were doing. Uh, and in fact, we know in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord tells Ab Abraham, says, I'm not going to destroy the Canaanites yet because their sin hasn't reached full measure. Uh, then when it comes to Sodom and Gomorrah, which were Canaanite cities, uh, the Lord sends angels to, sh to save as many people who are willing to listen to them. No one is willing to leave, including Lot and his wife and his two daughters. Uh, the angels read the passage carefully, have to grab their hands and drag them out of the city. They weren't willing to go. The Lord was merciful to them. Uh, and it just shows that what had happened to Canaanite society is they've become thoroughly corrupt. Uh, and, and you say, well, what about the children? Well, the trouble with children, killing of children is you only had two options, really. You could just leave them alive in the desert alone. You could take their lives or you could adopt them. Those are the only three possible options. The Lord, you couldn't adopt them because they would have brought their traits into you. And this is something I can develop at great length. But uh, adopted kids are terribly curious about, about their uh the, who their birth parents were, uh, what did they do, where did they go, what were they like? You couldn't, and then you couldn't bring them into your culture, uh, and and also you have this problem of of them growing up and saying, "So you killed my parents, huh?" Mm -hmm. um, and and people have a tendency to think their birth parents were all that. Uh, they just do, uh, and uh, I could go into length on that, but I just would say that. Um, it's not all now. Here's a phrase that's going to blow people's mind. It's not always wrong to kill the innocent. Uh, and people go, "What?" Uh, let me just give you one example. Uh, during 9/11, you know, when the planes ran into the World Trade Center and one of them crashed into the Pentagon, there was one other flight. We don't know for sure where it was headed. Flight 93, but uh, we scrambled two fighter jets to knock Flight 93 out of the air yeah. to destroy it. Uh, the, thankfully, believe me, they weren't able to arm the fighters and they didn't have time. So they were literally going to have to run into the jet 
uh, run into Flight 93 to knock it out of the sky. Anyway, uh, if they had done that, we would have thought that was a tragedy because it would have killed people that were innocent of any particular wrongdoing. They were innocent of doing anything that deserved death. But very few people, I think, would have said that would have been immoral. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's not always wrong to kill the innocent. And I think that's what you have when you're talking about little children is it's just simply the Lord says you cannot let them live because if you do, they will pollute your society. And uh, I have taught Jeannie and I were not able to have children. We took in and foster kids ourselves. We understand the influences that and what they're expecting. Uh, I've talked to other foster parents and one, one woman, I mentioned her in a blog who adopted uh, 18 children uh, had three of her own and then adopted 18. She says, all of them want to know about their birth families. All of them are intensely curious. Uh, and, and so anyway, the Lord just simply couldn't let that happen. But like I say, this is a, a gigantic conversation and I've written extensively about it at claydjones.net. And you can, if anybody wants to Google my article, why does God, or we don't hate sin. So we don't understand what happened to the Canaanites. You'll find it right away. I love that point, especially. I think that's super, super important. And I, and I think that goes back to kind of in this conversation in the first place, especially if you're having a conversation with somebody who's on the other side of this thing, is that like, <laughs> we don't realize that like innocent people die all the time. In fact, every single day. Uh, and, and we say innocent, right? Like uh, who's truly innocent? But, uh, but people die all the time just of natural causes. In warfare, even going on today, innocent people, as in non-combatants, are dying all the time. Uh, In fact, as we know, um, you know, in just the recent conflict between Israel and Hamas, Hamas is actually intentionally, they say they are firing missiles into Israel from civilian locations like hospitals and other things like that. Uh, But there's never been a war ever in the history of warfare where innocent civilians didn't die. It's never occurred that, that I know of. If somebody wants to email me the war where no, no non-combatants, no innocent civilians ever died, let me know. I'd be glad to know of that war because it just doesn't, that's just, that's not realistic. And I'm afraid, unfortunately, war means war. And when you go to war, you're going to have, you're going to have non-combatants, you're going to have otherwise innocent people that are going to die. Yeah. I think people are just going to have to uh, go out there and buy uh, uh, your book so that they can uh, really become informed on some of these things. Because the next thing I have to ask you, I know, is probably going to be uh, a question that deserves some unpacking. But but what you just said made me think about um, just kind of like the premise, premises by which we ask these questions. And if we're going to ask a question about God, we have to be able to understand what it means to adopt a, uh, a kind of, the, even if it's theoretical, uh, understanding of the transcendent, of the eternal, so that we can say, all right, well, if we're going to look at death, for instance, we have to understand that God does not see death the way we do. A transcendent, timeless God is never going to see death in exactly the same way that we do. Um, um, so Not, not the, even remotely, because... Uh, and this is, again, Christianity 100. This may be even Christianity 60, yeah. as in dumbbell Christianity. Uh, one of the first premises of Christianity is your physical death does not end your existence. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And, and that's exactly what you just were talking about. Your physical death does not end your existence. So, And everybody's going to die. Uh, whether you die at eight months old or eight years old or 88 years old, you're going to die. And it, But that doesn't end your existence. 
Uh, then comes the judgment. The judgment is coming. And so, yes, certainly the creator looks at death much differently than we do. And honestly, even for the Christian, he teaches, Jesus taught us that death for the Christian isn't that important. And people are like, your physical death isn't that yeah. important. I think people go, what's well, important to me? Well, I get that. But Jesus said, uh, do not fear those who can kill the body. He says, but fear those who after the body is killed can cast the soul into hell. He says, yes, I tell you, fear him. And I get that. That's the question. And by the way, back to Canaanite children, just briefly, uh, most theologians and most apologists that I'm aware of believe that children will be saved. Now, they disagree on the mechanism for that salvation. They disagree on uh, at what age. Nobody knows that that, you know, when do you stop being a child that could be saved? But almost all the uh uh, well, at least the majority of apologists and, and theologians that I know agree that children will be saved. So that would then be sending Canaanite children into a far better place than seeing their brothers and sisters sacrificed to Molech or being sexually molested or being forced to have sex with animals, which was widespread. Read my article in Canaanite <laughs> culture. Yeah. All right. So um, so here's a, uh, a question that's asked by C.S. Lewis that is loaded with some presupposition and some premises that need to be uh, unpacked. And But ultimately, it will lead us to the next kind of conversation uh, of what is the purpose of suffering? Because ultimately, the next question I think along the timeline here of a conversation about suffering is this. Okay, so we talk about the fall. We talk about God maybe being justified in those things that he's done in the past and that we see in scripture. We see evil. We see suffering. Why not just create a world where we, uh, where we don't have suffering. So, so here's what C.S. Lewis said. If God were good, he would wish to make us creatures happy. And if he were almighty, he would be able to do that. He'd be able to do what he wished. But since creatures are not happy, therefore God either lacks goodness or power or both. And Obviously, you're a scholar in this issue, so you know he's kind of toying with Epicureans, uh, Epicurus's original uh, kind of phraseology here with essentially God is either not good or he is uh, not all-powerful, and, uh, and therefore, if he does exist, he must be malevolent. Of course, this is picked up again to uh, quote, unfortunately, Richard Dawkins. This is picked up uh, by people like Richard Dawkins, but um, all right, so when we hear this, why, why not just create a world that doesn't have suffering? Wouldn't that be a better place to live? And I know we kind of hinted maybe to the answer I think you may give, but I'd love to hear what you would say about that. Why not just create a perfect world, utopia, which obviously socialism can create, haha, that's a joke, um, uh, that people can create, haha, that's also a joke. Um, why not just create a perfect world? Well, you know, first of all, let me address something about Lewis specifically. Uh, Lewis didn't believe that that argument worked, right. just to be clear to the audience. He didn't believe for, in Good. fact, he said that in his book, The Problem of Pain, where he's explaining, and I think he does a very good job of explaining why God Yeah, he totally, totally unpacks that after he makes that statement. He starts to talk about it. I want to make sure yep. everybody understands that Lewis didn't believe that, uh, that that argument stands. He certainly did not, because the argument doesn't stand. Uh, why did, you know... I, it's always interesting to me, and this can be answered in so many different ways. Why doesn't God, why does God create a world where there's suffering? Well, once Adam and Eve sinned, why the question then is, 
And as I already told you, you can't create free creatures and not allow them to use their free will wrongly. Adam and Eve used their free will wrongly. So the question is, why doesn't God just let them live in paradise? Why should he? <laughs> uh, once creatures are in rebellion against him, why should he let them live in paradise? In fact, I think what he's done, very simply what he did is he says, oh, you think you're going to do better on your own. Knock yourselves out. Uh, but don't think that I'm going to let you live in a in in a garden, you know, the old let you live in a rose garden. I'm not. I'm going to make life very difficult for you. Uh, and so he he sentenced humankind when Adam and Eve sinned. He sentenced humankind to death. And so uh, this is the penalty. Uh, and to those who say, well, I don't like it that God. One of the things when it comes to theodicy is we're not trying to defend a God that the atheist would like. Not at all. Right. Uh, when an atheist comes to me or a skeptic comes to me and they say, how can God allow evil? I'm going to give them the Bible's answer. What I think is the Bible's answer to why God allows evil. If the skeptic says, well, I don't like that answer. I don't care if the atheist <laughs> says, well, I don't like that answer. I don't care because I'm not trying to defend a God that the atheist would like because a God or the skeptic would like. Uh, I'm I'm not interested because a God that the skeptic would like doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. The one that exists is the God of the Bible. And if you ask me as a Christian, why does the God that I worship allow evils? Well, I'm going to give you the Bible's answer. Now, if a skeptic says, well, I don't believe the Bible, that's an entirely different thing. That's not related, actually, to the problem of evil. We can then get off on whether why should we should believe that the Bible was accurately transmitted to us. By the way, I have an article you can Google on the bibliographical test updated, and you'll find an article on the transmission of the New Testament. Um, or we can get into an argument on whether Jesus was really raised from the dead. But uh, when it comes to why God allows evil, he doesn't he had, he does himself or us any favors by allowing our lives to be easy. What he needs us to do, because then we'd really wouldn't want him at all because our lives would be so easy. But Jesus said, hey, you who labor and are heavy, heavily burdened, come to me. Uh, but see what the atheist wants is, well, he shouldn't have made a life so that it was difficult. Right. He should have made our lives easy. Well, that's, I'm sorry. He's not interested in that. And if you don't like it, tough taquitos, frankly, <laughs> because this is the way the Lord works yeah. and what he's doing. Jesus really was raised from the dead and Christianity is true. And uh, if you don't like the God of the Bible, well, you're going to have to deal with that one day in front of him. Hmm. Yeah. How, however, I would just say too, that um, we, we, you mentioned the punitive aspect of uh, of why suffering exists, but but there's also and and this is where I do think that we can um, we don't have to defend God. We're not God's PR men, but uh, because we just preach the truth and and uh, whether people like it or not, it, it is what it is. However, I do think that this is ground that needs to be considered by even the most staunch skeptic. Is that there's not only a punitive understanding of suffering from the Christian worldview, but there's obviously a redemptive. Uh, standpoint through which suffering, we look at suffering. And so I think about Bertrand Russell's uh, quote, which I'm sure you're familiar with, where he said, who's sitting next to the uh, bed of a child who is dying could say that they actually believe in God. Um, and so the atheist, which I think needs to be mentioned to the atheist, but also to the Christian, the atheist does not address nor answer the problem of suffering. They merely sidestep it with semantics uh, because the suffering still exists and all you've done is shot yourself in the foot and gotten rid of the one transcendent thing that help, can help you transcend 
the suffering that you're possibly in because you have to posit a transcendent good from your suffering, which can only come from a transcendent God. Um, So what is, in your mind, the redemptive purpose of suffering? And and, and, uh, beyond the punitive aspects of suffering, what good does God bring out of suffering? Well, that's a good question. Before I, uh, let me go back to addressing Bertrand Russell. I thought that particular quote was funny. I, I, I laugh a little bit at that, and I'll tell you why. Atheist Sam Harris, and I quote this in my book, Immortal, How the Fear of Death Drives Us and What We Can Do About It. I quote atheist Sam Harris, who says, there's no better no better answer than to tell someone who's lost a loved one, and he even says a little child, than to say, that child's going to be in heaven. Uh, so it's interesting. I'd love to get Sam Harris, uh, Bertrand Russell's long gone. I'd like to get Sam Harris and Bertrand Russell in the room and say, huh, Bertrand, uh, you're saying it would be ridiculous to talk about that. I, I think that's just I think it just shows me us how ignorant, frankly, Bertrand Russell was and how he really hadn't thought the issues through enough, because there's no better thing to tell someone who's suffering uh, of a terminal illness than you're going to be in heaven forever with Jesus. And we're going to be reunited because we believe in Jesus, too. So I think that Bertrand Russell's comment is ridiculous. Um, I mean, and and by the way, in my book, Immortal, uh, I quote many atheists uh, who agree that if Christianity were true, that it absolutely offers the best answer to the fear of death. Many atheists agree with that. And so I, uh, that's, just, that's just ridiculous. Anyway, the redemptive value of suffering is, first of all, suffering makes us insecure about this world. And that's eternally valuable. Because we shouldn't be in love with this world because this world has fallen. This world's a mess. People are raping and torturing and murdering each other in, long, in large numbers. Uh, we shouldn't be in love with this world. And God doesn't. God wants to point us to something else. And also, God wants, this is a, what we're learning here. And here's perhaps the biggest thing of all. There's many. I've got, uh, in, I wrote an encyclopedia article, in the Encyclopedia for Christian Civilization, Uh, On, I think I came up with 10 different ways that God uses suffering in in our lives. But perhaps one of the biggest things is if you connect suffering with uh, sin, which I do, I say that all suffering is one way or another, not directly, but one way or another resulted to creaturely sin. If you connect all suffering with sin, this is eternally valuable knowledge so that God can bring us into his eternal kingdom where we can live forever in his eternal kingdom, still have free will and yet not sin. Why? Because we're learning here the stupidity of sin. We're learning here the stupidity of rebellion. And and that's eternally valuable knowledge. In fact, I ask ask audiences all the time, I say, would you like to see me jab this pen into my eye? And everybody's like, what? And I say, I could, I could just jab it right in my eye, I could. And I said, but I'm not going to. You know why I'm not going to do that? Because it'd be too stupid. I'm too smart for that. But we don't tell little, we don't give little babies pens. Why not? They jab it right in their eye. Uh, Why? I have learned that you don't stick a pen in your eye. Babies don't know that. You don't, my colleague, J.P. Moreland, is always a little more indelicate than me. He says, he uses the analogy of why don't you, uh, why don't, how many of you would like to go outside, get a spoon, go outside and chow down on a steaming pile of dog poop? Nobody wants to do that. Why? Because they know better. But you don't put little crawly babies out near dog poop. Why? They crawl right into it. They don't know better. And perhaps, well, I think the most redemptive thing about sin is we're learning here that sin is stupid. And by the way, at the judgment, 
which is going to be significant. Uh, and of each person alive today, there's 7 billion people alive today is judged for only 10 minutes. That's 133,000 years. Uh, that's going to be quite an education. So I just, and anyway, I think that I could go on and give more reasons that, that suffering is redemptive. But to me, that's the biggest one is we're learning here that sin is stupid and that sin has led to a world uh, where if you say to God, I, I want to do my own thing, he says, okay, fine, do your own thing. Uh, and, you know, by the way, if you have a daughter or son who's in rebellion against you, if you're a good parent, and then, I mean, they're in overt rebellion and showing you a lot of disrespect, and all of a sudden they come up to you and they say, hey, dad, can I have 50 bucks for dinner and borrow the car? What are you going to say? Not if they're in I think a good parent says, no, you yeah. treat me like crud. I'm not going to, no, I'm not going to do it. Anyway, so uh, I think we need to understand, look at the larger picture here on what's going on in the world when it comes to evil. Yeah, I just I just want to add one thing to it, and maybe even hear you respond to it because um, I, I think you'd agree, but we'll we'll see. Um, in Psalm twenty three, it says, "You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and then you anoint my head with oil." To me, that's like such a beautiful poetic way of looking at suffering. So God's right there created a table with your enemies all around. Now that may be a table of peace treaty or something like that, but nonetheless, it's your enemies who are sitting around that table. You can think about that as literal physical enemies or maybe even psychological, emotional, whatever. But nonetheless, it says that in the presence of his enemies is where God begins to anoint his head with oil. That it's where that, and, and, that, and of course, anointing is used as a kind of biblical uh, analogy for supernatural impartation or supernatural authority. Um, God giving you something that you didn't normally have, and he's doing it in your head. So suffering can potentially produce a knowledge that you would not otherwise have outside of being in the presence of your enemies, dealing with difficulty. And I think we would all agree that the most ill-equipped people in this world uh, for dealing with life are the people who have never had to experience any hardship. The people who are most equipped to deal with life are people who've gone through some level of suffering, uh, experienced pain. And through that pain, it's trained them to do things like not eat dog poop. Because when you stick dog poop in your mouth the first time, you spit it out and you realize I'm never doing that again. So there is this kind of like redemptive epistemological purpose for, for suffering that's, that's so, so important. Now, uh, sh certainly comment on that if you want to, but I want to I add this to it. So, uh, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but surprise, I think, is something that we take for granted because surprise is the thing that keeps us in awe. It's the thing that causes us to look at the stars and say, wow, those things are, are so big and so beyond my comprehension. It is the backdrop for revelation in the Christian framework that uh, surprise gives us this, uh, this knowledge that we didn't have prior to, um, prior to that moment. Um, I think suffering in a way does the same thing. The suffering itself is not a surprise because this world is full of it. But what can happen through suffering is incredibly surprising, I think sometimes, at least in my own experience, and I haven't dealt with a whole lot. But what I have dealt with, the pain and the difficulty gives me at least enough confidence to be able to sit at the bedside of that dying child and look at them in the eye and tell them, I believe 
that God can use this for good. It may not be good what you're going through to the, to the oncology patient who's got cancer. What you're going through may be painful and it may be horrible, but I know a God who can use this for good. You will see things, and I can say this confidently to them. You will see things, hear things, and know things that only God can show you through this uh, if you turn to him. Uh, that, that will take you by surprise that you never expected and show you an appreciation for life that you never once had. Okay, uh, yes, indeed. A couple of things. One, I don't, when he said, I, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, uh, means he said that the enemies see God putting a table down for David and, and, and giving him good food and get, letting him bang with it. I don't think it means that the enemies are sitting around the table too because that would mean they were partakers of the table. I think what it means is they're standing back and looking at this and going, God is, wow, look at what God's done for these guys, uh, for this guy. Uh, and uh, for the child, you know, one of the things in having dealt with this subject for many years, and by the way, I've had bone cancer. Uh, so I'm not, uh, I'm not unaware of this. I had bone cancer. I lost part of my spine to bone cancer. Uh, so I have quite an understanding of suffering. And I agree with you uh, that, that suffering is redemptive in the sense that what well one it makes us more Christ-like it purifies us Romans chapter five verses two and three uh, suffering purifies us makes us more like Jesus and it encourages us Romans five two and three again it encourages us that Christianity is true because I haven't gone through any suffering including having bone cancer where I haven't later. Uh, maybe not immediately, but later gone, wow, that God really used that in my life, if for no other reason to develop godly character in me. And that's encouraging to me because uh, it makes me think that Christianity is true. As I see godly character worked out in my life, I go, Christianity is true. I would caution people, however, although that's true, and you're absolutely right, Reed, I would caution people. I would not say that to somebody who's sitting at the bedside of a child that's dying of cancer. I, I, what I would do, the scripture says to weep with those who weep. Uh, I would encourage them that they will see the child in heaven, but I probably wouldn't start talking to them about uh, the lessons they're going to learn and how this is going to be for their good. Uh, I'd keep that, but there is a time in time parents real parents want to know why did God take my child? Then uh, you say, well, you know what? I think you're going to find that God uses this for your good. I have a student. In fact, I've got a, I want her to write a, a testimony for me. I have a student who said that th she gave birth to a child who died in just a few days after birth. She says, I thank God that that child died because I learned so much and I would not be the person that I am today if God had not taken that child. And so suffering again is incredibly redemptive. And God uses it powerfully in our lives. And I agree with you, Reed, that I, I, like I say, including bone cancer, I haven't gone through any sufferings in my life at any time that God didn't use powerfully to make me more like him. And as he makes me more like him, I go, you know, Christianity is true. Uh, and I'm really going to be saved and I'm really going to live forever. Yeah. So let's, uh, I, and yeah, I was being more or less hy hypothetical with, with my scenario just to kind of illustrate, but, uh, but, but true. I think it's important to notice that, there may be people who are listening right now who have lost a loved one to COVID. Um, certainly the conversation around race is so political that it's, that it's hard to 
Um, it's hard to have it in my opinion. And we, I think if we'll be honest, we're so woefully normal in America that we're having to create racist incidents, but it doesn't d negate the fact that there are people who have wounds from racist incidents in their life and, and all sorts of things. And so as we have these kind of national conversations about these kind of things, uh, suffering becomes all that more important to kind of think about. Um, so, but, so let's move beyond the theoretical and move to the pastoral. Um, and, and let's talk a little bit about heaven, because I think one of the most redemptive things that you can learn from your suffering is that this world is not your home. So how does heaven, the knowledge of the eternal, the knowledge of uh, the fact that we are created as eternal beings, play into the reality of suffering? Well, to me, it's absolutely huge. Uh, and the first verse that comes to mind is in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul says, this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Notice Paul says, the slight momentary affliction, and that includes bone cancer as a slight momentary affliction, even though I was in immense pain. Why could that be categorized as a slight momentary affliction? Because he says it's you can't compare it with an eternal weight of glory. Yeah. Uh, and he says beyond all comparison. When Paul says it's beyond all comparison, he's not being speaking hyperbolically. That's not hyperbole. It's literally impossible to compare a finite time, even if it's 20, 30, 40, 50 years, a finite time with an infinite time. It is literally beyond all comparison. And, uh, and by the way, just a thought, I was in immense pain for about a year and a half, increasing pain for about a year and a half until they correctly diagnosed my bone cancer. Uh, and then they, uh, they misdiagnosed it originally, by the way, of being, being the same cancer that killed Ravi Zacharias. And boy, I'll tell you, my wife and I had uh, a few hard weeks then uh, thinking that I was going to die because that was, it's a fatal, that's a fatal cancer. Uh, anyway, uh, my orthopedic oncologist says, you know, I think they made a mistake on the biopsy uh, and he operated anyway. Praise God. It was a lesser form of cancer and I'm fine. But my point on that is, uh, even though I went through an immense amount of physical pain, the fact that I went through physical pain is just a fact about me. Uh, it doesn't hurt me. The fact that I go, you know, I was in an immense amount of pain 17 years ago. That's just a fact about my life. It doesn't hurt me presently. Uh, I broke my foot a few years ago badly, two, two bones in my foot, had to have surgery. Uh, that hurt like crazy, but it doesn't hurt me now to think about it. I'm not sitting there going, oh my gosh, it was terrible that I went through that. It's just a fact about my life. Uh, but now when it comes to eternity, so you can't compare physical suffering to eternity. They're just not, you can't do it. But see, we're going to live forever. And if Christianity is true, and the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, ends with, shall not perish, but have eternal life. If Christianity is true, then you really are going to live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Uh, if that's true, the slight, the, the everything that you suffer, including all the deaths that you witness, that's small compared to the fact that you're going to live forever in glory with Jesus. Um, and so I, I, the trouble is, Though there's another problem related to this, and that is Satan has made heaven look like a place that nobody wants to go. He's made he's presents heaven as a place where we're all going to be sitting on clouds, 
sporty and flightless, flightless wings, uh, strumming harps. We really don't know how to play and singing forever and ever and ever and ever. The Bible doesn't teach any of that. Right. Uh, heaven is not white, by the way. If you look in Revelation, heaven is jewel-toned. Another lie of the devil is you're not going to know anyone. That's not true. We're going to know everybody. That's not true. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I could go on and on. These are just falsehoods. I call what Satan has done to heaven uh, extreme makeover metaphysical edition, that he's really made heaven as a place you don't want to go. But heaven is going to be a place where, as a matter of fact, in the Old and New Testaments, the most common example in the Old and New Testament is that heaven is compared to a banquet. And I think we actually are going to be banqueting. I would remind everybody that study the scripture at all, that Jesus ate and drank in his post-resurrection body. And he says in Isaiah that you will be with me and you'll eat the fat, fatted meat uh, and aged wine and said, in fact, he says the best of meats and the best of wines. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know whether it's going to be literal meat, but we're going to banquet for sure. I mean, the scripture talks about that all the time. We've, we're invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. Uh, and like I say, again, I just remind everybody, Jesus ate fish after he was resurrected in his post-resurrection body and we're going to have a body like his uh and so everything that we do uh when it comes to the problem of evil in fact c.s lewis said he says any any attempt to answer the problem of evil that does not look at eternity uh cannot be called a christian one and i think that's true but unfortunately an awful lot of people when it comes to that write books on theodicy an awful lot of people actually leave heaven out of it. And, and that's, uh, that's, tr that's troubling to say the least, because eternity is your future. And if eternity isn't true, then Christianity is a false religion, and we should all be doing something else. But if Christianity is true, you're going to live forever and ever and ever and ever. And you're inheriting the kingdom, not just any kingdom, but the kingdom. And when he comes, there won't be any other. Yeah. And so uh, that's, that's where you have to put this into perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, of course, the atheists could still say, well, that sounds like an interesting myth, but they cannot say what Bertrand Russell said, just to circle back to that. They cannot say that that's not good news, because if it does exist, at least for, thank God for the intellectual honesty of some who say, if that does exist, then that is good. Yeah. You know, one of the things about that, again, it, it, if, a, if a skeptic asked me why God allows evil, I'm going to give him the Bible's answer. Again, if the skeptic says, well, I don't think Christianity is true. Well, that is an argument I'll be glad to have with them. And in fact, in my book, Immortal, I do a chapter on the reliability of the Bible and the, and the truth of the resurrection, uh, that, that Christianity is really true. But see, that's not about the problem of evil. We have to move off into the primary source documents, which are the, the, God, the, the letters of the New Testament. Uh, were they reliably transmitted to us? And these reliable historical documents tell us that Jesus was raised from the dead. And we know extra biblically, by the way, that people gave their lives. The first disciples, some of the first disciples gave their lives because they believed Jesus was raised from the dead. Like Josephus uh, says that James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned to death by the Sanhedrin. Mm -hmm. uh, why would James allow himself to be killed if he didn't think Jesus was raised from the dead? He, I mean, it's ludicrous. So anyway, just pointing out that we really do believe Christianity is true. That's a separate set of arguments, though, uh, which I'm glad to argue. But that's a separate set of arguments from whether or not, um, you know, uh, or why God allows evil. Yeah, I thought about that, too, by the way. I know this is a total side note, um, kind of off the 
path of what we're actually talking about today. But I did think about the self-evidencing quality of the scripture, and that suffering plays into that, in that uh, the characters of this, the Bible are allowed to suffer, namely Jesus. Um, they are allowed to suffer, and they're not kind of trying to portray some picturesque picture of everything that took place in the Bible. And it is a self-evidence and quality that the scripture is not trying to pull any punches, or, but to give an actual accurate depiction of what took place. So obviously we believe that they're reliable. And if, um, if there's any better place to end, I think it would be just on this reality, is that when we look at suffering, I think it was Nietzsche who said that the only way that you could posit a God, and I'm paraphrasing here, the only way that you could posit the existence of a God would be that that God was willing to suffer like we are here on this earth. And when he said that, he was speaking specifically of the Greek gods, the Greek pantheon of gods who took on human flesh, but was uh, just totally uh, unobservant about Christianity and that that is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, that there is a kin fellow in your suffering in whatever you may be going through in Jesus because he experienced it all by coming to the flesh and enduring what, um, uh, what no one would ever choose to endure except for God himself. Absolutely. And, and, you know, whatever you think about the problem of evil, and I'm glad you brought it back to that, Reed, whatever you think about the problem of evil, remember that God the Son allowed himself to be tortured to death naked on the cross. You know, we see him with a loincloth. That's ridiculous. I mean, you couldn't have, a loincloth wouldn't stay on him for, for the first 10 minutes. <laughs> uh, you know, he's lying, he's, he's there naked on the cross with all of his bodily functions out there going on for everybody to see. Uh, he has to raise himself up and down just to breathe. Uh, the most torturous death that the Romans could devise, they called it the ultimate penalty. Uh, in fact, excruciating comes from excruces for out of the cross. I can, I do not know of a more painful uh, death than uh, the cross. And we, so we need to remember that Jesus came into our world and allowed himself to be tortured to death for our sin so that we, those who come to him and accept that work can have eternal life. Yeah. Yeah, it's the greatest gift uh, uh, that you could ever receive. All right, so I want people to dig into that gift a little bit more and the gift of your book. So obviously, the the last thing we were talking about with heaven and what it what it's going to be like is is in your book, Immortal. And uh, if people want to dig a little bit further into kind of the question of evil and suffering, then I, I want to encourage them to get why does God allow evil? So how can we keep up with what you're writing, your blogs, and then also how can we access any books that you have written or will write? Well, I, uh, coincidentally or not, have them put out here, this is why God allows evil, uh, which is what we're mostly talking about today. And then on the left is immortal, how the fear of death drives us and what we can do about it. Uh, and uh, so I, I just uh, would encourage people to pick up those books, especially why does God allow evil, since that was the topic for today. Uh, you don't have to fear death. That's the point of the other book. You don't have to fear death. I'm not afraid of the state of being dead. Uh, but so that, uh, claydjones.net, is the way that you can reach me for sure. The easiest, you can find me on Facebook uh, too. I have an author page and then a personal page. And so anyway, those are the ways that you can, you can find me. Okay, perfect. And what is your, do you know your handle for uh, social media? I don't know my Facebook number offhand, but I bet if you Google Clay Jones and, and uh, uh, you'll find me pretty quickly. Yeah. And uh, my, on for Twitter, it's Clay B. Jones. That's it. Yeah, that's my Twitter handle is Clay B. Jones. 
All right, we'll put all of that stuff down in the show notes. Well, I can't thank you enough for being here. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to over 20 years to write a book, uh, thinking about it and then composing and all that stuff and, and giving us such a great treatise on, um, on something that we deal with so that theology can take on not just a theoretical tone but also a practical tone so that we can understand how it impacts our daily lives. Thank you for shaping young minds uh, in, in ministry and everything you're doing for the kingdom. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be with you, Reed, and I thank God for your ministry. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate you uh, sewing into that today. God bless you. Bye-bye, everybody. Our thanks again to our guests for being on the show today. Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman was brought to you by our sponsors. If you like what you heard today, please do us a big favor and give it a five-star review and like it and share it with friends. And if you want to hear more awesome guests, make sure to check out past episodes. Indie Thinker is a nonprofit paid for by our sponsors and the generous gifts of people like you. In order to hear more great guests like you did today, please consider giving a tax-deductible gift by going to IndieThinker.org. And just remember, your voice matters, but infinitely more when you think for yourself. <laughs>